Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have three amazing, two amazing students with me today. I think we originally had three that we were planning on, but uh, then there were some changes. So very, very happy to have you here. And we're going to try something a little bit different today. I don't think we've ever done a podcast quite like this. I'm excited to see what happens. And I think that there are a lot of students that might want to go down this pathway at some point. So a trailblazer. And uh, like I said, I'm very excited to see what it is. So Allie and Jessica, I've got the two of you here with me today. And Jessica, you are here helping out. Yes. And uh, Allie, you are, so to speak, the star of the production. Yeah, I guess so. Representing the group of people that worked on a research project. Very, very cool. So if you wouldn't mind, let's have the two of you introduce yourself. We'll start with you, Jessica. Yeah, so my name's Jessica Kitson. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University, and I am currently pursuing IM. Internal medicine. Don't you have to be kind of smart to do that? You sure do. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and if I think we do sound checks that most students know this that go through the program now. The sound checks we do are superhero sound checks. Who would you be if you're a superhero? So you wanted to be Hulk so you could smash things and then still have the sensitive side when you're not green, I guess. And uh, brains and brawn is your approach. I like it. <laughs> very, very cool. Uh, internal medicine, and just out of curiosity, when did you uh, st start to think about internal medicine being the direction you would go? I worked in allergy before medical school for like five years doing research, and I really liked it. Um, when I started med school, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it because I wasn't sure if it was something that I actually liked or if it was something I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And this year, I've actually had a great time on all of my rotations, but I got to go to a conference this past December, and it kind of reignited how cool allergy was and the research we were doing. And now I'm back in IM. <laughs> That's very cool. So I am, um, and, and I don't think allergy usually stands alone, but I think people who go into immunology end up branching into various uh, pathways. Does that sound right? Yes. And you want to work with people who have allergies specifically? Um, yeah, allergies are immunology like immunodeficiencies um, and part of the reason is like how you mentioned they branch out is when I left we started to do a lot of multidisciplinary studies with either dermatology or neo like the NICU mm -hmm. or um, um, like renal like mm -hmm. transplant patients and so there's a lot of branching out so there's a lot to learn. I desperately wish people could see the smile on your face when you talk about mm -hmm. this. Clearly very passionate about it. Allie, the same question to you, and then we'll dive into the paper. Yeah. So my name's Allie Coffey. I'm also a third-year uh, medical student at Rocky Vista. Um, here on my psych rotation with Dr. Roundy, Roundy and Dr. Rayner. Really, um, Dr. Rayner, I just get to hang out with you guys occasionally. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> and um, I'm interested in pursuing family medicine. And tell me how you came to the decision on family medicine. And the reason I'm asking this today, by the way, is tomorrow is, uh, so match day was Monday. Mm -hmm. yep. We heard back from many of your fourth year students. It looks like it was a good year overall for your school, which is very, very exciting. Uh, and tomorrow we'll know which 
places people match to, so we're all kind of excited about that. And I think that's sort of the time where a lot of third-year students say, okay, I kind of have to know by now what I'm going to do, right? So you, back to that question, how did you decide? When did you know? Um, I think I was always interested in pursuing primary care because I really liked getting, getting to know my patients in that continuity of care. Um, and then during medical school, I discovered lifestyle medicine, um, which is a lot of like preventative care using diet, exercise, positive social relationships, and things of that nature to either prevent or reverse the chronic diseases, chronic diseases that are kind of like an epidemic in our country. Um, so like I really took to that and saw family medicine the best way I can implement that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I want to pursue family medicine. Have you been able to work with any family medicine docs in the state of Utah? And if so, is there one that you'd want to give a shout out to? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a few primary care people that I really enjoyed working with this year. Um, Dr. Jamie Longi, uh, he was my family medicine preceptor and he's very, without like knowing, I don't know if he knows exactly what lifestyle medicine is, but he practiced lifestyle medicine in his practice and used a lot of like hands-on um, like sports med and like OMT kind of things without being an osteopathic doctor. He just liked that kind of care. And then um, my pedi- uh, the pediatrician I would shadow, Dr. Uh, TJ Eskelson, he was also really great at um, just like talk, sitting down, talking with his patients, talking about preventative care and how he can educate his kids to live the healthiest life possible. And I just loved both of them. So I like it. Let's go ahead and, and make a shift to the paper. We're going to talk about a paper that you published. Tell us the name of the paper. So the title of the paper is Utilizing Digital Predictive Biomarkers to Identify Veteran Suicide Risk. All right, when I first heard about this, I thought, so you're going to track people's uh, what websites they're going to, <laughs> and that's somehow predictive. Much broader than that, obviously. Mm-hmm. How did you end up, how did you, I think we're going to also have some questions about depression and suicide from the shelf too. Let's do that first. I'm going to totally change directions before we come back to this. So one of the things that we wanted to do to to add some yield to the podcast is talk about um, the types of of principles that are tested for the shelf exam. You've done some um, searching on either AMBOSS or UWorld to look at those principles. And um, tell us a little bit about the kinds of things people need to be aware of as they're preparing for the shelf exam. Yeah, so I definitely, um, I actually use both AMBOSS and UWorld to kind of form high yield topics on suicide. And it's an interesting one because I don't think there's too many avenues in terms of where the question stem will go when it's discussing suicide, but there's a few high yield um, things I picked out. So one thing that I thought was very high yield was risk factors for suicide completion. And there was a great mnemonic that was sad persons. And so that's going to be the sex of the patient. So male is more um, common than female to actually have suicide completion. Age greater than 45, depression, um, history of previous attempt, ethanol or drug use, um, rational thinking loss if they're in like psychosis. If they have sickness, so like a chronic illness, if they have an organized plan, if they do not have, so it would be no spouse or other social support, um, if they have stated future intent, and so that would be the mnemonic for sad persons. And then there was also if they have a recent psych hospitalization or a family member that has completed suicide. Um, 
it is suicide is the second leading cause of death for 15 to 34 year old years of age and it's the 10th leading cause of death overall with 45 to 64 year olds um, being the highest risk for that and then more than 50 percent of suicides are by firearm so when we're interviewing patients like in the ER or any like environment we should definitely ask if they have guns how are they stored um, to be able to assess for those risks um, another very interesting thing I learned while looking through it was if a previously depressed or agitated patient suddenly becomes calm or less symptomatic their risk for suicidal behavior drastically increases it's sort of I've come to peace with it, I'm gonna kill myself I think sometimes those clues are coupled with giving things away. Did any of your questions talk about that? Uh-uh. Okay. So I, I want to, if I can, Jessica, I wanted to ask just a couple of questions. Yeah. You did mention that uh, suicide completion is higher in, in men than in women. Mm-hmm. What about suicide attempts? It's higher in women than men. Higher in women than men. You also mentioned that a risk factor is being over 45. Yes. Tell me a little bit about um, how suicide looks over a lifetime. Any, any idea how that looks? You know what? I'm not quite sure. I think not it sure. might peak in adolescence and then peak again towards that like midlife I think it. I think it. Of peaks just after middle just after adolescence I think so I think um, young men young women and maybe late adolescence there's kind of a peak there and then my understanding is there's another peak um, in older age but those numbers have been changing a lot lately and I think one of the one of the challenges of preparing for the shelf exam is that some years um, there are questions that seem to show up that say this group is at particular risk for suicide I think at some points I've seen questions in the kinds of tests I take that speak to Asian, elderly Asian women being at high risk. And to me, I don't know where that fits in with things. I think generally speaking, the, the things that we'll, you'll pick up on most are um, probably loss of social support, recent suicide, because these are hard data points, right? Those mm-hmm. kinds of things, um, substance use, so many uh, suicides have substance use or, or substances on board when the suicide happens. There are a number of people I, anecdotally I've spoken with who attempt suicide while intoxicated, and it's not really the same kind of consideration when they're not intoxicated. So I think those are, are all very interesting. Chronic illness, we recognize that. I think asthma might be one of those that's that has a higher rate as well. Um, but you know, there's a dozen or so higher risk. I can imagine that diabetes, where you've had some sort of uh, terminal vascular, uh, vasculop- vas- vascular events. That's, I'm not saying that right, but where you may have had to have amputations, mm-hmm. visual changes, strokes, those kinds of things. One of the other things that you mentioned, I think um, often a lot of people go down the road of trying to get guns out of the house, right? And, I, and one of the approaches that uh, that I've seen over the last uh, couple of years is something called access to lethal means, right? So, so the questions that you can ask are, okay, you're suicidal, 
Um, what can we do in terms of access to lethal means? Is it a gun? Is it something people can lock up? Is it a knife? Is it, is it poison? Whatever the case might be. If we think more about lethal means, I think that changes the dialogue. And, and I think in some level, on some level it gets us away from the conversation about somebody trying to take your gun, which that's yeah. not a conversation everybody likes, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's sort of interesting is there's not a lot of therapies that have actually been shown to be helpful for suicide. Did you come across any that were? For as as far as I was able to find is if for acute management you would hospitalize the patient, um, just putting them in a safe place until they're able to move forward and then for long-term management it would usually be treating like any underlying psychiatric disorders um, starting medication that would be appropriate for whatever they are diagnosed with and then antidepressants if needed. Um, two of the medications that have been shown to decrease risk of suicide I found were clozapine and lithium. Yeah, clozapine uh, definitely has data in schizophrenia called the intercept trial. I think that was uh, Herbert Meltzer that did that. The lithium studies go way back and we did an interesting podcast on that that I would refer people to. Um, the, the issue of suicide is very challenging because of, of prediction. We're gonna get there in just a minute. I think there's also some questions that show up in shelf exams about use of ECT in emergency situations with suicide. Does that sound right? Or is that only psychotic depression in pregnancy? where those questions show up? I did look through all of them and I believe I just saw it in the postpartum psychosis. Okay, because I know they show up there and I, I know that there are more and more people looking at how do we treat acute psychosis in the emergency room. As some of you know, S-ketamine is a medication that has an FDA approval for treatment of depression and the, the goal is that if you start an antidepressant, it doesn't increase the risk of suicidality. There are some concerns in some portion of the people who start antidepressants. There's a boxed warning about this, that it may increase suicidality, right? And, and S-ketamine is a nasal insufflation that, that can be given in that setting. I think uh, ketamine infusions have shown some data. And then there's another uh, therapy that seems to have some pretty good data. There's a guy named um, Jobs, Dr. David Jobs, and he has something called CAMS, which is the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. Very, very fascinating. He has data that suggests that if you can even meet with one person and go through this CAMS process, um, that you can that you can affect the suicide outcomes, which is pretty amazing to me. So, so there are a lot of people looking at treatment, but I I think um, unless you have more about the types of things that show up. We'll jump to the, the paper. Did you have anything else you wanted to add, Jessica? I think one other high-yield um, topic that I wanted to include was adolescents presenting to the ER with um, contemplations of suicide. And I think it leads to how can the hospital staff move forward? So for example, it's an adolescent male who broke up with his, his girlfriend broke up with him. He's been very depressed, considering, has thoughts of suicide, um, has thought of ways to do it, and is worried about actually going through with those plans, but he doesn't want his parents to know. And so what is the next step? And 
The answer pretty much is, is encourage the patient to share safety concerns with the parents, but that parental consent is not required for the hospitalization. Interesting. Boy, as a parent, I would probably be screaming. Yeah. <laughs> why do you have my child and why can't I see them? Mental health treatment can be very, very challenging. That is an interesting question. Uh, one of the challenges we have, obviously, with suicidality is knowing who might have suicide uh, or who might become suicidal or who might attempt or complete suicide, right? And I think this is uh, one of the things that your paper speaks to, right? So let's jump back in there. Yeah. Your, your paper was, if you'd give us the name again. Yeah, uh, so it's called Utilizing Digital Predictive Biomarkers to Identify Veteran Suicide Risk. And so couple of questions here. How in the world did you end up in this project and why did you want to do it? Yeah, so um, I'm a part of a track at Rocky Vista University. Uh, it's called the Digital Health Track. And so we kind of look for new technologies or ways to help our patients or help physicians reach their patients in like new and innovative ways. And we've talked about biomarkers before in that class in um, one of our lectures. And so um, one of my classmates who kind of started the idea and got the ball rolling for this project, um, Adeline, she kind of had a question, I think, during class about biomarkers and then um, and how they could be used to like help prevent suicide. Um, and so she kind of got spark had that spark initially, and then I kind of reached out to her, and I was like, I'd be really interested in working on a project. Like, let's come up with something. Um, so that's where the biomarkers piece kind of fit in, is like we kind of had exposure to it through our digital health track. And then we have two um, faculty members that are director co-directors of our track, um, Dr. Cole Zanetti, and he his current position is in clinical informatics at the VA. So he's pop, his population he can kind of tap into our veterans. And so I think that's kind of how we also got that. We were like, we could work with him and if, we didn't really know where our project was going to go at that point, but we're like, oh, that's like another way thing we like is veterans and suicide. Um, and then our other co-director, Dr. Reagan Stegman, she uh, is now just recently retired from the Air Force, so she's a veteran as well. So that was kind of another influence on that. Um, so we, that's why we kind of chose the digital biomarkers and then the veteran suicide risk kind of came together. And then it came through, um, then like I guess the topic of our paper slowly evolved. We've been... I bet it was like six months before we like kind of like came down to a topic and we worked with uh, Dr. Brian Schwartz. He's uh, another faculty. I think he's on the Colorado campus, but he's like works within library and research and he's really good. We had a couple Zoom meetings with him and he kind of just helped us like narrow down topics and think of relevant things to include in our paper. So it was kind of a slow process, but we finally got there and found a topic we were interested in. And then once we started, um, had our project in mind, we had a few more students that thought it was interesting from our digital health track and they helped us work on it. How did you identify what was a digital biomarker? I mentioned before that I initially thought this was your tracking veterans website use, somehow they consent to this. Yeah, so um, we first got exposed to it again during a uh, one of our lectures, but a digital biomarker is defined as something that is objectively gathered and measured by wearable devices and sensors that can use, be used as an indicator of normal or pathological processes. So think of things like your smartphone, your Apple Watch, things like that. So when it's like even tracking your steps, that can be a digital biomarker. 
So right. things we're kind of aware of. So some of these things, sorry, go ahead. No, it's like things that we've been exposed to with um, just like smart devices um, in the past, but now it's just using them in a new, um, new application. When I think about blood pressure, mm -hmm. I don't think of that as a digital biomarker. Yeah. When you monitor a pulse with your smartwatch, it now becomes a digital biomarker because of the way it's captured. Yeah. Is that the way I'm to understand mm -hmm. this then? Okay. So you now had a digital biomarker definition. Yep. You had a population that you liked quite a bit. Yeah. The, the other part of this paper, the way I understand this, you're making the case that um, there's a tremendous problem with suicidality among the veterans. Right? Um, I think your paper uh, referenced somebody who said 17 deaths per day due to completed suicides in veterans, and mm -hmm. I, I don't think you referenced how many were um, suicide attempts that did not lead to death, right? Correct. Uh, th that's a pretty good number. I, I did some math in my head and it was more than 3,000 because 10 times 365 is more than 3,000, right? In fact, I think it approaches nearly six to 7,000 people mm -hmm. a year who have been veterans. At any given time, I think um, there were 100,000 people in Iraq for a number of years. So that's, that's a big chunk of the people who I, I assume deployment is a risk factor in this as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big chunk of those people that were deployed, and that stunned me. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm under the impression that you want to try and find a better way to identify who's at risk. Mm -hmm. Tell me how screening tests that are currently available came into play. How did this be part of your discussion? Yeah, and um, part of our project is that we never wanted to like have these biomarkers replace the current screenings because we wanted it to be something that could supplement or augment what we have just to make it better. So the current screenings are things like the PHQ-9 um, and the CSSRS, and I'm blanking for the full what that stands for at this time. <laughs> it, it's the VA's. I think yeah, the correct. VA developed this. I yeah. think I think we have had a podcast on some of these screener, screeners. I know that we talked mm -hmm. about the PHQ a little bit. I don't know if we talked about the the VA screener. There's one other one that's used quite quite often, the Columbia. Yeah. Which I think is different than this. Yeah, it's kind of a stepwise fashion, if I remember. Um, so it's like PHQ-9, and then, or in the VA, it's the CS. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna have you stop for just a second. At the VA, the screening process is stepwise. Now, now start, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure you that, that would have been Yeah, there. so I guess if your average ER, PHQ-9 is, is your first step. Mm -hmm. Please jump in if I'm wrong, though. At, and at, then the, the, VA, at the VA, yeah. Yeah, then the VA is the CSSRS. And then if you, that's kind of like your first step screening. If you test positive for that, the threshold for each of those, and then you go to the Columbia suicide. Right, that screening. was the way I understood it. So, yeah. so at the VA right now, they're trying to capture who's at risk for suicide mm -hmm. by these three steps. Mm -hmm. So the first is the PHQ, and I think there's extra emphasis on the last question, the PHQ-9, the ninth question, which is, are, have you felt suicidal in the last two weeks? Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. She's holding up two mm -hmm. fingers for me so I don't get this wrong. It's, no, it's mine. <laughs> I, no, maybe how I remember, I don't know. It, it helps me, thank you. Um, and, and so if somebody screens positively, then they go to the, um, 
the VA assessment, which, if I understand correctly, is not so much about a number and what you circle, but maybe a more open-ended interview. Mm -hmm. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that sounds... I'm kind of confusing the Columbia one in my head now, but I think you're right. And then the Columbia has some aspects of that, as mm -hmm. I understand it. And, and again, the, the Columbia mm -hmm. seems to be one of the skills that has garnered the most attention over mm -hmm. the last number of years. Um, and then after you screen positive three times, it's a pretty, I think, difficult to get there. Mm -hmm. Even then, if I understood your paper, mm -hmm. almost 50% of the people who would have screened negative, not uh, risen to the threshold of being assessed, so to speak, fully or, or being having some sort of intervention, nearly 50% of those people within a short time after their visit ended up killing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of um, where our research paper wanted to take over is that these screening guidelines are the best we have right now. And they're, they're good, but they're not perfect. And there's room to, for improvement, especially and identifying those at risk. And those people may be presenting to the ER not because of their suicidal um, or anything like that. It might be some other reason or they might be, be seeing it in clinic and they know veterans are at risk so they give them to everybody. But those people are either they know how to answer the questions or they don't want to discuss their suicidal ideation at that time. So then you're right, that's where the, there's like around 50% of people can be seen in a hospital or clinic and be test negative using these screening um, measures and then still go on and die by suicide. So that's- So it wasn't, actually, it wasn't actually 50% of the people who were screened then, what you're saying is the way the, cap, the criteria captured 50% of the people who have substance use disorder and, and suicidality or PTSD. Any of the above, it's okay. just suicide risk. It, it, by a number of factors, um, we didn't specify like if it was just PTSD or any or substance use, but um, yeah, and then um, but yes, so once they tested, most of them tested negative in the office or ER or whatever setting. Fifty percent of those that ended up dying by suicide had tested negative for those screening measures. Okay, not fifty percent of the people that had been in the office. <laughs> that had the combination, but of the people who tested, who screened fully negative, or people who have that diagnosis, 50% of those actually have no, no, no markers, no flags. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why do they not have flags? You mentioned that maybe there's um, um, misdirection, so to speak. I don't want to have to deal with that. This is not something I want to talk about with you, so I'm going to write something different than what I'm feeling. Are there other factors that come into play? I mean, probably some similar stigma to like mental health and all of the, the general population, but specifically the veteran population, there could be more things like they don't want to talk about it just because it brings up PTSD or something that they've lived through in the past. Um, they might not, once they say they are suicidal, they might not be able to go on deployment anymore. So that's a big factor, I think, for people. Um, and just not wanting to admit to themselves they have depression or suicidal and then don't want to talk about it or things like that. One of the other things I speculated about was the issue of people who have intermittent suicidality. So there are people who are able that chronically have suicidal thoughts and most of the time those thoughts are manageable for that person 
and then sometimes those thoughts break away. Yeah. Did you come across any research that spoke to that? Um, let me think. I, I, yeah. I think that's kind of peripheral to kind of yeah. the question you were asking, but I wondered if you had come across that. Um, I can't think of anything that we talked about, like intermittent suicide, um, suicide ideation. But I mean, it makes sense. I think you're not. Maybe you're probably not suicidal 100 percent of the time, and which is maybe the difficulty of catching it on these screening measures is maybe they weren't when they were seen last. But um, with these digital biomarkers, there's something that can be used continuously and continuously gathering data. So maybe we didn't catch it when they were in the office that day, but if we catch it when they're at home a month later. One of the comments in your paper that caught my attention was something that reminded me of a, of a screening tool used in borderline personality disorder called the state trait test. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it looks at people, what is the long-term nature of your personality? How are you feeling right now? So it captures the long-term data and the short-term data, and you might see a lot of fluctuation. In the short-term data, it might give you some assessment of risk in, in the moment, but then you are able to see whether the interventions over time or time itself are seeming to make some difference in the overall risk. Mm -hmm. And there was something that in the paper that triggered that in my mind. It was along the lines of how there might be somebody who has these chronic risks, uh, PTSD, substance use disorder, maybe family genetics, uh, maybe depression, whatever the case might mm -hmm. be. And then there might be times when, uh, for whatever reason, they um, are more likely to be suicidal or at higher risk for suicide. And, and, and I think the digital biomarkers help maybe show that? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, um, is they can like bridge that gap between those like highs and lows of maybe those fluctuations in like, I'm good today, and then later down the road another stress comes into their life and that kind of peaks their their suicidal ideation and so um, something that they have those chronic risk factors for but now we can monitor those things more acutely on a day-to-day -day basis and have like a collection of data over time that these screening measures sometimes can miss so um, I think that's a good implementation of digital biomarkers is kind of where we're at yeah I'm under the impression nobody has merged these as a way to think about suicide this is more of a of a paper that says consider this. This is a starting point and maybe we should look at this further. Yeah, so I think where a lot of the research stands right now is like we've identified these things as um, biomarkers and we have associated them with increased suicide risk in veterans, but we're still like not quite there and being like, oh, now we should monitor these things more continuously or more consistently in conjunction with the current screening guidelines and put together like a two-prong approach to monitoring suicide risk. We know these things exist, but we haven't quite applied them yet into like daily practice. I want to talk a little bit about the specific biomarkers. Mm -hmm. uh, let's let's start with the easy one. Um, Samsung watches. You might call them Apple watches. <laughs> I might call them Samsung watches, right? You're an Android person. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, there are people who are digitally aware, and then there are Apple people. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm ki I'm, I'm ki I have no energy in this um, argument. <laughs> Two people that have Apple computers sitting in front of me. I'm not going to get in a fight with you guys. You'll hit Apple me through computers. Apple watches. I, I, yeah, we got them all. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so a smartwatch. Mm -hmm. Smartwatch. Tell me about 
uh, how the digital biomarkers for a smartwatch might help us augment our understanding of the risk for suicide. You're, you're saying that there's a correlation between something mm -hmm. that a digital, that a smartwatch would be able to pick up. Tell me what that is. Tell me, tell me the data behind this. Tell me the story. Yeah. So I'm, there's many more out there than the ones that we referenced in our paper, but our goal of our paper was just to pick a few that have great, have like more data than others and kind of speak to those and just open the eyes of people to like how digital biomarkers can be utilized in this space. So one that's like we saw a lot of um, data for is sleep. So you're wearing your smart device in your sleep and it's tracking your sleep quality. Um, some specific ones we saw were if you had any sleep disturbances. So, you know, nightmares is a common thing with PTSD. So if you had many disruptions in your sleep, um, if you just had, you rated your sleep as poor, um, and then if you had periods of the night that were, you were awake. Um, so one interesting thing was uh, we saw that in older, um, like just depending on your age, um, older veterans would have a higher increased risk of suicide in like the early morning hours, um, like three to 6 a.m. And then like younger, it was like after, just after midnight. So just like monitoring those things about your sleep had predicted increased suicide risk. Okay, this is um, kind of an important question. Mm -hmm. What is an older veteran? <laughs> I think the paper uh, said 60 and older. He's rubbing his head. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm not old yet, apparently. Uh, I've got to be careful with my language. <laughs> um, heart rate variability. Yeah, Tell me about heart rate variability. So um, another biomarker we saw that is, so if you had an increased basal heart rate or that heart rate variability during sleep, that's also an indicator for um, increased suicide risk. So I think if you just think of our lowest heart rate when we're sleeping, and if it's elevated due to stress, maybe substance use, uh, nightmares you've had, that would kind of indicate that increased resting heart rate during your sleep. So it's not up and down, it's just higher than usual. Yeah, it was our basal heart, like the, the rate in general. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not the variability as much. Are there other, um, besides knowing what I want to order from Amazon next, are there other things that your smartwatch can tell you about a, a biomarker that would be useful in terms of screening for suicide? So um, the other ones we started looking at um, were speech pattern and recognition. Um, and so this one at the paper, I think it was a call-in service, those people that were already discussing um, either therapy visits or like a suicide hotline, we monitored their voice. And so things like if you had like a less animated or flatter monotone voice um, with less um, like vocal energy or you had like breathiness to your voice, those were all indicators of increased suicide risk. Um, I don't know if there's an, I'm sure there's apps that you could have continuously listen to your conversations, but <laughs> yeah. that's a whole nother can of worms. And so this was specifically at like a suicide risk hotline, hotline or something like that. So that could be something maybe a therapist listens back to her visit and applies this technology for and see if there's change over time in her visits, even if maybe her patient's not expressing suicidal ideation. I found this to be absolutely fascinating. I, I think I mentioned before this that I came across a paper where somebody had made the case that their AI program was able to pick up patterns 
in speech that were, I, I think, either suggestive of schizophrenia or autism. I, I, I would be hard-pressed to be sure which one it was at this point. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was quite surprised by how much speech patterns can be affected by mental health. And, and I think this is absolutely brilliant. And, and, and I also wonder, how do you get somebody to wear a watch that might listen to everything they are saying? Um, not everybody that was, um, the, not every veteran trusts the government mm -hmm. uh, implicitly. Yeah. And now it's like some of the limitations of biomarkers is you have to have one that access to like a smartphone or a smartwatch or something like that and not everybody has access to those items. So that'd be something that you'd either have to provide for your patients or offer that um, the technology to do so. So that'd be something, and then also if they're willing to comply with the technology, if they want, they're willing to wear it, um, why they sleep um, during the day, or if they get that route, the speech pattern recognition. So those are some like hurdles with digital biomarkers is you have to be using Consent the technology. So if you had somebody that was suicidal and not engaged, this still doesn't quite help us pull them in, but it might help us work with patients who are engaged in trying to reduce the risk of suicide in themselves. Mm -hmm. I, th I think um, I, I want to move on from smart watches mm -hmm. if I can. But before I do, I have a question. How can a smart watch tell if somebody is having nightmares versus like sleep apnea with hypoxic events versus um, disruption of sleep by maybe benzodiazepines, something along those lines? Is there is there something that kind of the, the smartwatch can discern those? I think that's a good question and I think these are probably very smartwatch and like apps within the smartwatch dependent because there are like sleep monitoring apps and these papers kind of used it more in like a controlled setting so maybe they didn't use a smartwatch per se but we know there's increased basal heart rate. Um, an increased basal heart rate shows an increased risk so utilizing that metric with a smartwatch that's how we're trying to implement it. Um, there's different apps out there that, I'm, that I, beyond my knowledge, that probably monitor these things better than others. Or if you are using a CPAP machine, how, if it tracks that data of your sleep over time, maybe that would be another implementation of a digital biomarker is use the CPAP to track heart rate or something like that. But I don't know of like apps specifically because that is a whole new technology. So, so wearing a CPAP machine, I can tell you that every time I walk into my appointment, uh, Luann Bergman, who is the nurse practitioner that works with me, says something along the lines of, why didn't you wear your CPAP for four days in August of this year? <laughs> and I say, because the cord broke and I ordered one from Amazon as soon as I could and nobody had one in supply where I was at. <laughs> in Capital Reef or something like mm -hmm. that. And she says, she looks at me kind of, not over her glasses, but sort of looks at me and says, uh-huh. <laughs> and so, so digital, like these digital tracking is there with CPAP machines, I, mm -hmm. I know that much. Yeah. Are, are they, I think, it's scary to feel like a dinosaur in medicine, right? It's scary to feel that way. And one of the things, there, there are a couple of things that feel a little bit overwhelming to me because they weren't part of my medical education. One of those are, are the, uh, I think apsiximab was one of the, it was mm -hmm. an antiplatelet uh, medication, mm -hmm. was one of the first biologics that was approved. 
There are two different endings for biologic drugs, if I understand correctly, and there's a whole host of them that I know nothing about. It's terrifying. The other thing I feel like I don't know anything about, despite feeling fairly adept with uh, computers, are FDA-approved um, medical devices, mm -hmm. and apps are now getting FDA approval. And we don't, it's not the same, uh, like with medications, those have to have a prescription to get there, but I don't know, do you have to have a prescription for an app? Did you come across anything like this in your research? Not that I think and think of, like for a prescription for an app, um, like I mentioned, some of these things weren't utilized specifically via apps or via like a technology um, like a smartwatch or a smartphone. We just saw that these markers could be monitored via those things and then should be implemented as a digital biomarker. Um, and so I can't say like that these biomarkers we researched were used in that setting, but I will know that I was just one of my rotations this year. Um, it was a cardiology, electrophysiology specifically. And so the, a lot of EKGs and smartwatches have like a heart rate or like a one lead EKG capability. And for them, they didn't have prescriptions per se for an Apple watch, but there was like other devices that you could have like um, little remotes, like kind of looks like a, Roku remote size almost, and you put your hands on it, then it turns into like a four lead or a six lead and things like that. So they, I don't think they like prescribed them because insurances haven't caught up with that reimbursement yet, mm -hmm. but they suggested them to patients to get as monitoring. So it'll be interesting to see if it comes into like a prescription, a prescription that insurances can cover, like maybe a CPAP, like that's a device of sorts and technology that's covered by insurance. I, I'm under the impression that if you're not wearing your CPAP and it shows up in your uh, data logs, <laughs> you'll be in trouble. Mm -hmm. I, I am I am tracking that much, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so. Interesting. Um, what other, so, so you talked about a smartwatch. What other devices would be able to capture uh, data digitally and help maybe um, prevent suicide and help with screening for suicide? Were there other devices that you looked at or did they mostly all go through a smartwatch? I think the ones we looked at, we were trying to do smartwatch and smartphone because that's the most accessible things that people may already have um, mm -hmm. with them. So that's the ones that we stuck to on our paper. But there's many devices out there, I think, these days that look like a watch and track sleep or like the Aura, was it the Aura rings? It's like a mm -hmm. fitness ring thing or the Whoop watches, other fitness trackers that track more than even like an Apple watch would. So I think there's a slew of different technologies out there that I don't know specifics about, but I'm sure there's one that's better for sleep than your average Apple watch. But we tried to stick to things that would be more accessible. What kind of ring? What? What kind of ring? Oh, it's like an aura. Isn't it called an aura ring? I don't know the name of the ring, but I've seen like commercials or advertisement for it, mm -hmm. and it's kind of gonna track all those health. Yeah, aura. O U R A. This is an acronym. No. Aura ring. I think. Aura it... smart ring, the world's best sleep tracker. Mm -hmm. Uh. The new Aura Ring generation. By the way, we are not sponsored by Aura Ring. Just to make sure that's good. <laughs> generation three is here, smarter and more powerful than ever. Our smart ring tracks you. Uh, tracks your sleep stages tracks. to learn what factors make you sleep deeper. 
Interesting. I, I feel like we're on the verge of um, a lot of different medication medical changes. I, I, I can't help but wonder if somebody who has the ability to monitor their health care more directly doesn't have the ability to change it more directly. Mm-hmm. Anything you ran across along those lines? I think an exciting thing about like something like digital biomarkers and things that have had positive impacts with um, like smart devices are it takes the, like the patients are able to monitor and track their progress and then come to your physician with like data about and like more knowledge about their disease process or things like that and they can present that information and have that conversation with their physician ahead of time with this data in front of them. So I think that's an exciting thing as like maybe a like family physician to work with patients and having things they can track at home and then they can monitor their progress and hopefully motivate them to make better changes. Um, or, I don't know, just if that made sense at all. Did you see her smiling? Yeah. That was kind of like your smile earlier. You can see the passion about this, can't you? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Anytime you have a physician that's passionate about what they're doing, I think that will work harder for you. With regards to the paper, mm-hmm. what have I not asked you about? I think we covered a lot of it. Um, Just like our main purpose was to identify what a digital biomarker was, the current screening guidelines that exist. Um, We identified a handful of biomarkers that have been researched and found that there is sufficient data supporting these. And our conclusion was just that we'd like to utilize these digital biomarkers with the current screening guidelines to hopefully start making some headway in this area. Wow, sounds pretty good. (laughs) Unless you have anything else, I'd like to hear, first of all, Jessica's take home and then yours, Allie, Mm -hmm. your final thoughts. Yeah, I thought it was a really great study and it is really exciting to think about where we could be in the future in using technology um, to track just like better health and giving people more... um, forgetting the word, but just like more tools in their own pockets to see where they are at and kind of the trends of where they are going so they can take charge of their lives. More autonomy, more medical decision-making autonomy. I think the word I was thinking of when you were is like empowerment. Yes. That was the other word I was thinking about too. Yeah, Yeah, those are both great. Mm -hmm. I like it. Allie? No, I just wanted to... It was good to have the opportunity to talk about our paper because we've gotten it published and we've been working to get present this information at a conference and I'm excited that we'll, um, a couple of us are going to get the opportunity to present it next week so it was kind of like a good practice run even just for our poster session and talk about it and especially with someone who's close to the topic as well like you Dr. Mary. Oh I don't feel like I know anything <laughs> well, about this. I, in fact there are a couple of things I've got to note here like was it really a hundred thousand people in country at any given time? Well, I think there were times when it was more. Maybe I have that totally wrong. I might put a note in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, kind of the section that describes it. I was also thinking about how little I seem to remember about risk factors for suicide um, because they, they do feel like they change just a little bit. I feel like the other challenge with them is that they don't, we know that these things describe many people who attempt suicide, but they don't tell us who will attempt suicide mm-hmm. by any means, right? There are 
so many people that might meet all of those criteria and yet never be suicidal. Right? And so it's such a challenge. It's such a difficult area. I think um, because it's been so difficult, the thing that I, I think I've really focused on, and maybe this is my take home, is that uh, how do you treat suicidality, right? And, and I've, I've really been impressed with uh, the work that Dr. David Jobs has done. I, th I think uh, his research is, I, I struggled to believe that he could prove that he reduced the rates of suicidality by having one intervention and talking to patients. And then I read how he built the, uh, the collaborative assessment model. He calls it, it's called the CAMS now. I read how he went about thinking about it, the things that he thought were important. I read about the study he did, I think it was at Fort Hood. It was one of the uh, places in Texas, I think it was Fort Hood. And then he did another, he's got another study with uh, medical, not medical students, um, college students, and and he was able to show that that one intervention made a difference. And and I was absolutely floored by that. We we then um, got some of his books, we started reading those mm -hmm. books. Corey, our unit uh, director, administrative director, has used the CAMS, I think, in a way that is just absolutely remarkable. Right? We, we know there are a lot of things that don't reduce suicidality. It doesn't look like prolonged exposure, for example, for PTSD really changed suicidality, even though, even though we know um, PTSD seems to lead to suicidality. It, it seems like we need to treat suicidality, not depression necessarily, not PTSD, PTSD necessarily, but we need to treat suicidality. Even if it seems to arise out of the other problems, we still need to treat suicidality. So it's, it's been an issue that's been on my mind a lot, how, how to help people who are interested in being safe, be safe. And, and really, Dr. Jobes has this really amazing approach, which is, if you really wanted to kill yourself, you wouldn't be talking to me, you'd be dead. So let's figure out why you want to be alive and start from there and then look at those risk factors and how can we address those, problem solve those, use some sort of therapeutic approach inside that CAMS uh, framework. And, and again, I probably should be the last person talking about it, but I've been impressed with what I've read and the data that I've come across. And I feel like it's one of the brighter spots in suicidality and treatment of suicidality. So um, the idea that we might be able to identify people that we would send to a therapist that could talk to them in, in a way that is, I, I think his approach just makes a lot of sense. And to me, this picture maybe feels more manageable than it did an hour ago and uh, three years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I land and kind of my take home. But I would be the last to say that I'm a knowledgeable expert on this. I think all I wanted to do was ask you as many questions as I could, speculate about things I think I know and probably have wrong, and have you kind of tell me what you came across and what you learned during the paper. Um, other thoughts that you had? No, I think um, just when she mentioned like what she found for shelf, a question, for shelf questions, I think the extent that we learn, at least at this point in our education on shelf exams, is how do we manage it super acute in the ER and it's you admit them. Yeah. And beyond that, we don't have a lot of answers. We know two drugs that decrease suicidality, and then we kind of are left in the dark. And so I learned something new today, the CAMS. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I don't know, that's something I think, especially as a primary future primary care for both of us could be on that front is to learn about because how 
what do you do besides admit them? You have to do other things at that point. So, yeah, there are a lot of patients that will say, listen, you can't get me in there. I, I mean, here's the deal. I want to kill myself. What can you do for me right now? I had uh, that happen more than once in the past. And if you try to admit me, I'll walk out of here. You can't stop me and I will be dead for sure. So let's try to work together. And I was like, whoa, feels like I'm held hostage a little bit here, but these are the terms that somebody comes to, with, to me with treatment. And now I think I would approach that somewhat differently and say, you're right. If you really wanted to be dead though, you would have already been out of here. And so we don't have to worry about hospitalization unless you feel like you can't keep yourself alive. So let's talk about this, right? And um, it's such a fascinating kind of change in paradigm where e even though for us the test question always is hospitalized, right, that's the answer, the research by David, Dr. Job says maybe that isn't the full answer, right? There's clearly a time when somebody can't be safe. But there are a whole lot of times when somebody might come to see you in primary care and say, hey, I have a lot of suicidality and I'm struggling managing it. I don't think I need to be hospitalized, but what do I do, right? That's a very different conversation, isn't it? Very. Yeah. yeah. And that's not the kinds of questions you get on your exam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope that there are other students that um, will talk to me about papers they've published and how they might apply to psychiatry. Maybe they won't. We still might do those. I very much appreciate the two of you being willing to do this because this was thrown together kind of quickly. You talked about maybe being able to do a podcast, but there were a lot of time constraints, mm -hmm. and yet you wanted that experience. Yeah. I'm glad you did. Me too. Very that means grateful. a lot to Thank me. Thank you. Yeah. Have you guys listened all the way through a podcast where, where we kind of have our sign-off? Do you know how the sign-off goes? I think I cut them short once I heard you wrap it up. <laughs> so there's actually a full sign-off. Okay. Um, I say on that note, team out, and you guys say team out. So. Let's go ahead and wrap it up, shall we? Mm -hmm. Team out. Team out. Team out.